Hello and welcome to the Business Standard Morning Show. I'm Veenu Sandhu. It's the 25th of January 2024 and here are the questions we will be answering today. What will it take for WED in India to succeed? Can India challenge US dominance in international payments? Should you sell the rallies and buy the dips? And who was Kalpuri Thakur? With rising wealth, more and more Indians are choosing exotic foreign destinations to get married. From nearby Phuket to exquisite Italy, their favorite holiday spots are now doubling up as wedding destinations. But this trend is hitting the local wedding industry hard. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has repeatedly appealed to affluent Indians to wed in India. But what will it take for the concept of wed in India to succeed? Abhijit Kumar finds out. The allure of foreign shores for weddings is undeniable. Exotic locales, stunning backdrops and a touch of exclusivity, all these are a must for rich Indian families opting for destination weddings abroad. But there is a worrying trend here, outflow of currency from India. The wedding industry in India generated 4.73 trillion rupees in 2023, a 26% rise from 3.7 trillion rupees in 2022. And the wedding expenditures on destination weddings abroad ranged between 7,500 crore rupees to 1 trillion rupees last year. The significant outflow has the government worried. At a recent Monkey Bath address, Prime Minister Narendra Modi nudged couples to choose domestic weddings instead of overseas destinations, emphasizing on wed in India to arrest the outflow of money. The popular perception is foreign locales add extra grandeur to the weddings, but more importantly, that wedding venues within India have become extremely expensive. Top-tier wedding venues in India, like premium five-star hotels, palaces or forts, may cost 3 to 5 crore rupees for a two-day event with 200 guests. Expenses can increase based on additional family requirements. Such venues with plush regal settings and services are usually in Udaipur, Jodhpur, Jaipur in Rajasthan or Hyderabad in Telangana. Meanwhile, a wedding package for 150 people in Phuket, Thailand would cost around 50 to 70 lakh rupees. Industry experts note that when spending around 1 crore rupees or more on a wedding, people opt for destinations like Thailand for a similar budget. It not only enhances the experience but also adds an exclusive touch to the event. So what's ailing India's upscale wedding industry? Why weddings are going abroad is one, there is a there are a set of people who want to do destination weddings abroad. So if there is a mindset that they want to go abroad or somebody has planned it, they would go abroad. Many countries can, there is there is no great restriction for weddings on the beach. You know, for us, there are a lot of CRZ regulations to even have a simple uh, celebration on the beach. Then there are a lot of issues with music, copyright, licensing. The other big, bigger challenge that we've seen in the recent past is that of air connectivity. Connectivity apparently has not restored to the way it used to be pre-pandemic, as a result of which airfares are very high between cities. That way, many of the international destinations are coming around that price. The other issue is that of when you do a wedding here, the GST becomes a, you know, a huge uh, irritant. Rooms uh, in uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia are available at far lesser than that you know and gst rate is particularly very less some places it's two percent three percent and all inside five percent 
The wedding industry, including the goods and services, is among the top five industries in India. And the exodus of wealth poses the question, what can be done to keep these celebrations within our borders? Is there a possible solution? Rajasthan is known for the weddings, but you know, when it comes to um, the families, uh, these, you know, um, ex the people who are ready to pay extravagant money, they don't want to repeat their destination. So if in one family, one wedding has been done in Rajasthan, they would want to opt for other destinations. So the better way of doing it is, you know, developing more destinations, going towards the south, going towards, uh, you know, the hills and all these places where we can develop more uh, properties and create more scenic views until and unless the government gives that push along with the state governments uh, you know if i look at outside of kerala outside of goa outside of rajasthan uh, northeast has got huge potential uh, jammu and kashmir have huge potential again there is huge potential but that infrastructure push has to come first from the government look at what has happened in uh, ayodhya you know we've the, the Ram Temple has finally come up. Uh, yesterday, Taj signed its third hotel in Ayodhya. Till about a month back or two months back or three months back, nobody thought of putting up a hotel in, in Ayodhya. Industry insiders believe that to stem the outflow of wealth, more investment is needed in domestic wedding infrastructure. President of the Confederation of All India Traders, VC Bhartia, had recently highlighted India's potential with over 2,000 locations in 100 cities for grand weddings. The focus should be on developing luxury venues and premium amenities nationwide to stay competitive. According to a 2022 report by hospitality consultancy Hotelivate, India had 1.5 lakh branded hotel rooms, with a proposal for about 59,000 new rooms across the country in the next five years. Of this, 72% or about 35,000 rooms were under active development. But analysts say the demand for hotel rooms will outpace supply in the same period. With 25% of the world's weddings taking place in India, Timothy Chi, Global Chief Executive of the Not Worldwide, which runs the wet tech platform Wedding Wire India, is optimistic. In his words, as Indians increase their spending on weddings, companies like his are bullish about the market. So will the affluent Indians opt for domestic weddings, giving up the clout of a foreign destination wedding? That would alone remain a challenge, the bragging rights or uh, the kind of a mindset that I am doing better than the other, therefore I want to go abroad. But let me tell you, um, the Prime Minister being now the, the poster boy or the real, in the sense, real brand ambassador for the country, I'm sure after his statement, there, there will be a lot of rethinking on going abroad. As India looks towards a future where weddings are not just celebrations but also economic catalysts, the key lies in premiumization and expanding the domestic market. Industry insiders believe a robust infrastructure and state-of-the-art amenities can go a long way to arrest the outflow of money and opportunity. Meanwhile, an altogether different kind of marriage or tie-up is promising to make our lives better. Google India and NPCI have joined hands to expand UPI for international payments. Reports suggest that Google Pay makes 26% of all online transactions in the world and is among the top five mobile payment services. 
This initiative may therefore give a major push to India's UPI to emerge as an alternative to the Western international payment systems. Kasturi Akhil has more on it. Google India Digital Services and NPCI International Payments recently entered into a pact that will act as an enabler to accelerate the expansion of UPI payments across the globe. The move will now expedite global acceptance of UPI, providing foreign merchants access to Indian customers who will no longer have to rely only on foreign currency or credit of forex cards for making digital payments and will have the option of using UPI-powered apps from India, including Google Pay. A 2023 Alt Index survey found that Google Pay is used by more than 150 million users across 42 markets. Already, eight countries including the UAE, Japan, the US, the UK, Singapore, Bhutan, Nepal and France have started accepting UPI's QR-based payment system and NPIL is in talks with nearly 30 more nations to use UPI infrastructure. Various other countries in Asia, Africa and the Middle East have offered NPCI to assist in establishing UPI-like digital payment systems in their countries. With NPCI expanding its platform on the global scale, it offers an alternative to various countries to use along with SWIFT. The Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, or SWIFT, is a messaging system used by over 11,000 member banks and financial institutions in more than 200 countries for financial transactions and payments across borders. So, is UPI technological infrastructure well-equipped to challenge an already established international payment system? UPI, of course, has to do more work on, on being moving from being uh, just a transactional system for individuals to uh, supporting trade. Right. So, so, there is work there, but UPI is uh, a far better technology because it's instant. It's unlike SWIFT, right? Uh, and it's a new age technology that way. Right, it is handling billions of transactions, so there is a uh, scale is not an issue, right? So UPI will certainly come there, uh, but but there are more work to be done. Cutting off a country from the SWIFT system means an instant suspension of its international finance and trade ties. Russia was cut off from the system on 26 February 2022 after it attacked Ukraine, but it can be counterproductive too. The reach of Russia's alternative to the SWIFT has been rapid since the ban. According to a Reuters report, over 450 new entities have joined it since the ban. India's UPI too is expanding fast. With more and more countries joining India's instant real-time payment system, internationalization of rupee would also gather steam. But Rohan Lakhiar of Grand Thornton a leading auditing and advisory firm thinks the path of UPI's international success has certain limitations. Whenever uh, UPI is taken overseas, these are bilateral arrangements. Whereas SWIFT is a multilateral messaging system covering across the globe all the banks. So for UPI to uh, work in each country, a uh, bilateral agreement has to be signed with each of the countries and which is logistically fairly handy. Even when uh, the partnership with Google, uh, what it will do is it will only enable UPI where the bilateral agreements exist. 
Google cannot on its own enable UPI system uh, in countries where such agreements do not exist. So these are going to be driven by NPCI's international uh, subsidiary, where they will want to reach out to as many countries from a uh, you know transaction uh, remittance uh, uh, heavy countries and would want to get into bilateral agreements. But this is certainly not a competition to SWIFT. But it will uh, certainly help retail cross-border transactions to happen more seamlessly. It will be, become more accessible. It will become cheaper. NPIL's next target is to conquer the $767 billion global remittance market. According to the World Bank's latest report on remittances, India saw the highest amount of remittance inflows in the world in 2023, amounting to $125 billion. Notably, the U.S. remains the largest source of remittances globally, with Saudi Arabia coming second. The World Bank said remittance flows to India benefited by initiatives like UPI linkage between India and UAE. That stood at 18% of India's $125 billion remittance in flow in 2023. India has partnered with banks and payment companies in countries which receive the most remittances, and these countries are in various stages of UPI integration. Experts thus suggest, going forward, UPI's expansion will allow remittance flows in these countries to bypass international payment systems enabled by American card networks like Visa and MasterCard. Experts point out that UPI does have the potential to provide faster, cheaper and more sophisticated payment services on a global scale, and it requires more work in terms of widening its services, which at present are limited to peer-to-peer transactions. Moreover, since its expansion depends on India's bilateral agreement with countries, therefore its global acceptance is still a work in progress. NPCI has recently launched UPI for secondary markets. The aim is to streamline trading and increase security. Speaking of trading, Indian equities are stuck in high volatility as their sharp gains from last year are facing resistance in the first month of 2024. With foreign selling resuming and geopolitical tensions on a rise, how should you navigate the wild swings in the current market? Should you sell the rallies and buy the dips? Find out in this report by Harshita Singh and Puneet Wadhwa. Indian equity markets have been choppy so far this month. The frontline benchmarks have pulled back to one-month lows and are nearly 1% down for January. This comes after a sharp surge since December 2023 that saw the Sensex cross 73,000 and Nifty 22,000 for the first time. Rising geopolitical tensions in the Red Sea and the recent flare-up between Iran and Pakistan are keeping the rally under check as per analysts. In addition, a pushback to hopes of a US rate cut in March and a rise in the US bond yields to 4.16% has also kept markets on the edge. What do analysts make of these wild market swings? And should you sell the rallies or buy the dips? And also let us not forget the political tension. Now it has come quite close to India. I mean, Iran and Pakistan tension and also close to Taiwan election. Uh, there is some, uh, you know, uh, war of words. And also there are some signs, including uh, RBI, that uh, the rate cut may not happen very soon, you know, in both US and India. So all these uh, give me fear, along with, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the overvaluation of uh, many small and mid-cap. The turbulence is also due to the intensified foreign selling recently. 
FIIs have sold shares worth 16,601 crore rupees so far in January. Some market participants fear this could also be due to the enhanced disclosure norms that will kick in from February 1. Reports estimate a sell-off worth 1.5 to 2 trillion rupees over the next six months is possible by foreign funds that are unable to comply with the SEBI norms. These require FPIs with over 50% holding in a single group or over 25,000 crore rupees exposure in Indian equity assets to provide granular details about their beneficial owners. Despite this risk, analysts suggest investors use any market correction to buy large-cap stocks. The large caps are not getting spat, but they, you will, you know, you will have a cushion in that segment because they are unlikely to crash, you know, 5, 10, 20 percent in a day. So you will have enough time, even if you are negative on the market, to exit. So therefore, this is a time to have a large tilt towards a large cap. Why on the day? Uh, because uh, last few days the FIs are also selling. You know, uh, for FIIs and the smart uh, HNIs, only the bull market is a good exit point for them to exit without damaging the returns. So everything looks good on economic front, political, economic in the domestic economy. But this could be used to, you know, book profit by smart institutional investors and uh, ultra HNIs. So that remains as a risk factor. So therefore, even on the large cap, one can slowly, uh, you know, consider buying on uh, declines. Thus, near-term consolidation will continue in the run-up to the interim budget amid likely pressure from foreign selling. Today, on 25th January, the Lal Street will take cues from global peers and react to Q3 earnings of Bajaj Auto, Tata Steel and Tech Mahindra, among others. He's making plans for an early retirement. Business Standard Last week, Indian stocks saw the biggest outflow of foreign funds in 19 months. Clearly, after a record-breaking rally, investors were booking some profit. After the financial markets, let us now talk about socialism. About 35 years after his death, the government has now decided to honour prominent socialist leader Karpuri Thakur with a Bharat Ratna, the country's highest civilian award. Raghav Agarwal tells us more about him. Karpuri Thakur was the first non-Congress socialist leader who became chief minister twice. And barring 1984, when Indira Gandhi's death generated a huge pro-Congress wave, he remained a legislator till his death. On January 23, a day ahead of his birth centenary, the central government announced Bharat Ratna for him. Born on January 24, 1924, in a village in Samastipur district of Bihar, Thakur is the fourth person from the state to get India's most coveted award. The other three were Rajendra Prasad, Jay Prakash Narayan and Bismillah Khan. Thakur participated in the freedom struggle and was a member of the Congress Socialist Party and later the Praja Socialist Party. In 1942, he was arrested for participating in the Quit India movement. Thakur was inspired by the likes of Ram Manohar Lohia and was close to Jay Prakash Narayan. He started young. Thakur became a legislator in the Bihar Assembly in 1952. He was 28 years old then, and he remained an MLA till his death in 1988, except when he became an MP in 1977 and when he lost an assembly election in 1984. 
Thakur served as Bihar's chief minister for two short tenures, one from December 1970 to June 1971 and another from June 1977 to April 1979. Karpuri Thakur is considered to be the fountain head of OBC politics in Bihar. He implemented the recommendations of the Mungeri Lal Commission. This panel was kind of a forerunner of the Mandal Commission. In its report, which was submitted in February 1976, Lal had named 128 backward communities, 94 of which were identified as most backward. The Karpuri Thakur formula gave 26% reservation, out of which OBCs got a 12% share. The economically backward classes among the OBCs got 8%. women got 3% and the poor from the upper caste got 3%. Thakur mentored and shaped both Lalu Prasad and Nitish Kumar's engagement with politics. People of Bihar also know him for another reason. In 1970, he had enforced the total prohibition of alcohol in the state and he had also removed English as a compulsory subject for the matriculation exams. Thakur was a tall leader in the Indian political space. especially for the backward class in Bihar in a post on social media platform X Prime Minister Narendra Modi said that Thakur's unwavering commitment and visionary leadership for the upliftment of the backward and the deprived has left an indelible mark on the socio-political scenario of India moreover the conferring of Bharat Ratna on Karpuri Thakur has been a long drawn demand of several politicians like Nitish Kumar following the announcement Politicians across party lines hailed the decision. Karpuri Thakur passed away in 1988 at the age of 64. He will be the 49th recipient of the Bharat Ratna. The award was last conferred on late President Pranab Mukherjee in 2019. Reports citing anecdotes say that in 1952 when Karpuri Thakur was selected for an official delegation to Austria he did not own a coat he then borrowed a torn coat from a friend for the trip Well that's all for today for more news and analysis please log into our website business-standard.com Thank you for watching For more news, views and updates, subscribe to Business Standard on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and Spotify. Also follow us on YouTube, Vimeo, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.